You're listening to Deep Cuts with Antoine Reed, Episode 25, Joshua Haberski, Premium Cigar Association. Antoine, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing well. Oh, so how are you surviving quarantine? <laughs> it's been it's been busy. I uh, I've been in my hometown of Erie, Pennsylvania, for the past few weeks, and headed back to the D.C. area this Saturday. But it's it's been certainly busy. We've been keeping up, as you can see. I, I'm doing the virtual meetings with yeah. congressional members <laughs> and staff, and still gotta keep up appearances. <laughs> Yeah, well, I know I, we've been the same way. It's been uh, not business as usual, but same workflow, just different, I guess, setting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, everything moving digital and, you know, it's, it's tough being in a, a, a relationship driven business, uh, making the adjustment. But I think it's been positive. We've had a lot of uh, good interactions with retailers, manufacturers, um, as well as, you know, our, our federal contacts and state contacts. And there's a lot going on in government. There's no shortage of uh, things to do. And, and we've been extremely busy during the, the past two months. Well, that's a, I guess that's a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> so exactly. Work is still getting done despite all this that's going on. Absolutely. Well, what I wanted to do today was, um, you know, I wanted to speak about everything that, that is going on because I feel like, I don't know about you, but a little bit disconnected from stuff just because I could see on a digital side that there is a little bit of a disconnect with people because they're so like bogged down at, at home and they don't have that usual workflow of going into an office, you know, checking their emails, keeping up with the, the flow of the usual stuff. So I thought, you know, this is kind of a nice way, uh, a little bit of a digital new wave kind of way to reach out to people and hopefully um, connect with them and give them the, the vital information. And especially with it being able to play back, you know, for those people who can't catch it, um, just a nice way, because people I found like to listen um, and watch something more than they sometimes like to read. So um, this is just delivering that, that news to them in a different kind of way. It's fantastic. I mean, it's an incredible re resource and I've reached out to you and, and you know, I've watched uh, between this Cigar Dojo and Coop, you know, we definitely have uh, a lot of content and information that's informative, entertaining, and you can really connect with the cigar community um, during this time. I think that's the thing that I miss the most of working in DC is right. all the different people that come to the office, have a cigar, have a casual conversation, talk about the issues of the day. Uh, but forums like this allow others the opportunity to, you know, really dive deep into some of the stuff that we're working on, but also have that connectiveness. And um, it's a lot different than uh, January when I last saw you at, at TPE <laughs> and had a great time at the conference. But, uh, you know, I'm glad we were, were able to connect today. Yeah, definitely. So I guess we should start with the big subject, which is substantial equivalence. And I know there's, there's a lot of movement last week about it. And there's a lot of push, you know, in the weeks previous to it, kind of leading up to what happened last week. So just for those people who might not know what substantial equivalence is, 
Um, can you explain it to us in kind of a layman's term so that we can, everybody can understand what it is? Yeah. Yeah, so it's a requirement for all tobacco products to either have a pre-market review or substantial equivalence. It's essentially allowing a product to be marketed by the Food and Drug Administration. And most of the substantial equivalence reports will be the pathway for cigars and premium cigars in, in particular. Um, it's a complex you know, document process um, and the FDA hasn't made things any easy for anyone in telling the industry what needs to be included in these reports. They've made the requirement you have to file these. Um, and, you know, prior to the court decision last week, um, the deadline was fast approaching. It was May 12th uh, of, of 2020. Um, and, th and that was in, in part due to a court decision um, where a, a group of the anti-tobacco groups uh, sued, um, you know, primarily involving vaping products mm -hmm. um, and, and, and basically saying with everything that was going on with vaping, um, they wanted this deadline moved up. It was originally set for August of 2021. Um, and that changed uh, things and, um, you know, with the coronavirus, there were a dozen groups that requested an extension to that deadline, um, you know, with the decision that, you know, May 12th, fast approaching, people would have to start submitting those uh, documents. Um, we, we were able to get a 120 day extension, uh, which will bring that to September 9th. Um, you know, I mentioned there was a dozen groups, you know, different parts of the tobacco industry making different requests. Uh, our request was originally for six months for premium cigars um, exclusively. Um, you know, I, I think everyone with everything that's going on with the coronavirus, it isn't reasonable that these reports could be filed given that uh, time frame and everything that's going on. We're talking about reports that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, hundreds of, of hours of human resources put, put forth, you know, travel research data. So it simply couldn't be done. So it's a good thing that uh, September 9th is, uh, is the new deadline for that, but we're still hard at work, hard charging to get the substantial equivalence process to be impro improved and streamlined um, so that it is a little bit more easy for uh, manufacturers of premium cigars to enter the market. Yeah, and I guess with, you know, with this process, I mean, do you have any idea if just because it has an extension basically come September 9th, is there going to be any more clarity to it? Like, is there going to be any more, is the FDA going to actually release more guidance to explain some of the kind of gaps in it now? Or is it just going to be same situation where, we could be in like the end of August and still wondering what exactly are they looking for? What exactly is this process going to entail? Um, what do you think yeah, about that? I think there's definitely going to be some progress between now and September. Uh, before, you know, everything started to shut down in March, um, we were actively meeting with the administration, with CTP, you know, presenting our concerns to the appropriate stakeholders, you know, trying to work towards a middle ground, something that, 
you know, can be accepted by CTP, but it is a reasonable solution. I mean, we're still trying to get exemption for premium cigars, uh, right. but recognizing um, we need to negotiate on several fronts. Um, Michael Edney's doing an incredible job on the litigation side and, and the various lawsuits that are out there. Um, you know, we're working on the advocacy and lobbying team to communicate concerns to the FDA. Um, and, and it's resonated. I mean, you have members of Congress, you know, almost weekly sending letters, making calls to the FDA on our behalf saying, hey, something needs to be done uh, about the substantial equivalence rule. That is the our North Star has to be addressed uh, because, you know, right now we're being told uh, it's, it's that uh, trying to fit a circular thing in a square hole um, you know, th that expression, it's, it's not workable. And, and, you know, the reports on, on substantial equivalence, but also uh, harmful and potentially harmful constituent testing. Um, each tobacco product, and, and you know this, has different characteristics, have, has different qualities. You know, the position of PCA has been for tailored regulation, you know, that uh, a premium cigar doesn't and shouldn't have to have the same requirements as some of the other products that are out there uh, and vice versa. You know, that uniqueness and artisanal craft qualities, we really feature those. Um, but, you know, I think there were some hearings. Um, Commissioner Hahn, uh, when he presented in, uh, in Congress, uh, Representative Andy Harris asked a question about substantial equivalence. And, um, you know, the commissioner said that there was going to be more guidance and we would get more information on the substantial equivalence rule to make it easier on this issue. Uh, so we're, we're following up with that congressional office to see if that information was actually sent. Um, and also pressing forward with the administration contacts and the FDA. Yeah, and it's this, it's, you know, when you follow all the legislation stuff that's been happening and that's impacting the premium cigar industry, it's funny because it, it's not really driven by premium cigars. I think, as you mentioned, it's kind of driven by vapor or e-cigarettes. And then premium cigars is just lumped into a big category. Um, you know, I, I've never gotten a pulse for how people in the industry feel about that because um, it's one of those unspoken things, especially like with us working with TPE, for example, you know, we work with two sides of the aisle. So we've, we've never really gotten into it, but I mean, you having, like you said, people come into your office and talk about like, how do they feel about, like you said, being grouped into this one giant category instead of having like that tailored approach to regulation. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's resonated that they're, they're, we need to have responsible solutions, ones that allow legal products to be sold to legal age adults. You know, that's kind of the standard across the board. So, you know, uh, now, you know, we've had to sh uh, shift towards the end of last year into this year on the T21, you know, that's another area where the FDA was ill-prepared and didn't re, you know, release guidance to anyone, whether you're a retailer of a premium cigar or a vapor product or, or anything across the board, you know, you were told to instantly comply with something and there was no additional guidance there. Um, so, you know, I think industry-wide, that's something that we're hoping we can get guidance that's specific to premium cigars, but also when it is applicable across the board, 
Um, you know, we want folks to be able to have that clarity and have that business certainty. You have PCA members that sell other products um, and also, you know, premium cigars. So we're looking across the board. Obviously, um, you know, we're, our position is premium cigars, uniqueness, artisanal qualities. But we want to make sure that we're able to provide the resources for our members to comply to all of the different regulations and, and legislation across the board and, and really influence it before it becomes a problem, before it has to go to the courts. So, you know, I think that's one of the things that we've been very active um, and, and as an association fighting above our, our, our weight class, so to speak, um, especially on retail issues, small business issues. Um, you know, COVID-19 has put associations like ours that have you know, small businesses to the forefront. And, and we've had a seat at the table and a voice. Um, and that's allowed us to really, you know, talk about a lot of issues that are related to tobacco, but get uh, an inroads through some of the retail small business uh, areas where we wouldn't be able to otherwise connect with certain congressional offices. And just with like issues like substantial equivalents, um, I know the retailers seem to understand this issue a little bit better. I don't know if, if, if the end consumer has, I just say that because, you know, for the consumer, like, like, especially the summertime with the, the IPCR slash PCA show, that's like when you get like all your big releases. And, um, I mean, usually from like May 1st, like onward, you're just like inundated with press releases and announcements of new releases. So to them, I mean, it's like business as usual. But like, if I think if you're in the industry, you kind of see, you know, the what's coming with substantial equivalence and how that could impact it. So just for those consumers that might listen to this or watch this after the fact that we've done it, um, can you explain like how this impacts them? Because I don't know if they really get it. They, I think they kind of see it as a manufacturer issue. Like this isn't going to impact me. You know, it might impact the the main the people who make the cigars, but it doesn't trickle down to the consumer side. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it, it affects everybody across the board, manufacturer, retailer, consumer, you know, manufacturer, literally to be able to sell your products. Um, I think it affects the retailer of, you know, what is permissible to be on your shelves. And then from the consumer, it really is about your options and your choices. And, you know, if this rule goes into effect as it currently stands and the requirements are, you will see a significant portion of the market exit the market, um, especially small batch, limited releases, um, things along those lines. It's, it's just not economically feasible to have a limited edition thousand box line when the cost of getting a, a marketing or substantial equivalence uh, designation would, you know, be hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, you know, I'm having, uh, I'm enjoying a Tatawahe uh, small batch um, for, that's available at Up Down Cigars during Mardi Gras. Something like that, you know, it, 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 it would be hard to justify the cost. And, you know, there are certain um, you know, grandfathered products that if you were on the market prior to 2007, you don't have to worry about uh, the pre-market review substantial equivalence. Um, 
but for a lot of the newer companies out there, this would, you know, wipe out entire lines. And I've had discussions with, uh, you know, some prominent uh, manufacturers of some of my favorite cigars, like Roma Craft Tobacco. You know, they're a 2016 company. Things like that, it really restricts the creativity of the industry. And I think that that's one of the messages that we've been putting forth and also getting companies like that um, to carry that message like CLE and, uh, you know, Christian Arroyo, folks like that, um, that would be significantly affected with it. But to answer your uh, question directly and simply, you know, consumer choice is definitely hindered by the substantial equivalence rule. Right. And, and I mean, on that topic of new releases, I mean, I think we talked about, or you all talked about this at TPE, but like, are companies even really able to release anything new right now? Because you see, like I said, you're still seeing, even from when the deeming rule was announced to now, you're still seeing new releases come out. So there's like a, a I think a huge kind of disconnect in between like, like the legal side of it and then how they kind of find a loophole to, to get like a, a limited run out or whatever. Like, what's you know what should we i mean what should we really get because i think we're all confused by that because like i said we're seeing two completely different messages here yeah well it, uh, definitely if you're a manufacturer you're thinking about producing a cigar you have to have a, a team of lawyers um unfortunately especially in this you know we've been providing a lot of guidance to uh, manufacturers and retailers as they ask questions. You know, we work, um, you know, with uh, two law firms and uh, get a lot of those specific in the weeds legal questions, and we'll address those uh, on an ad hoc, ad hoc basis. Um, on March 19th, um, you know, we released a statement as PCA, kind of updating everyone on where things stood there has been a, a lot of confusion. Uh, you're, you're absolutely spot on with that. Um, you know, some folks with that grandfathered status, you know, have basically have been reaching out to retailers saying, hey, you know, we have grandfathered products, you, you know, buy our products because if they're not grandfathered, you know, th you're going to have the FDA coming to your store, taking it off your shelves, and it's going to be contraband product. Now, that's not the case. And, and that's why we had to provide that nuanced position. There's a lot that, you know, could transpire between now and September 9th. There are court cases. Um, and you saw, you know, with the, the COVID-19, the extension that was granted. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, that has been a, a concession that has been made. Um, premium cigars, specifically speaking to that category, in January, it was determined that we're the lowest enforcement priority. Um, and that was a designation in a document. Um, we're waiting to see what that actually means um, and if that's going to translate into further policy considerations. And if that does, that will have an incredible effect in things like substantial equivalence and some of these rules as they're applied. So, you know, we were helpful for that. Um, you know, basically we told uh, the, the, the folks in the administration, you know, we're, we're grateful for this, but we need something that has legal bearing that we can utilize, again, to provide that certainty. And this administration, um, you know, has championed itself as deregulatory, as um, something that would provide small business certainty. And we've been reinforcing that, basically saying, you know, the messaging that they've put out over the past three years 
Um, this is a perfect issue. This is going to affect an incredible amount of people, 30,000 jobs in the retail sector, 120,000 um, in, in secondary and tertiary industries. So it's, um, you know, has far reaching weight in states like Pennsylvania and Florida, it's even heightened. So um, we really need to put that message forward and get the job done so that we have regulatory certainty, um, you know, before September 9th now um, and onward. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, that, that is another big issue that we're facing. Like this is an election year. You know, how much is really going to, I know when the um, Stephen Hahn got appointed to the, to take over as the FDA commissioner, there was a, a kind of a news item about it because, you know, we had, did have all this regulation stuff going on. And again, it was more about the vapor stuff, but it was how much can he get done with this being an election year? You know, where's the focus going to be? You know, how much, you know, power, like I said, does he have? So like, in, in your experience in this industry, how does the election year kind of impact regulations and, and everything going on? Yeah, you know, I think that uh, the regulation side and the administration, even in the midst of uh, COVID-19, you're seeing, you know, regulations continue to be promulgated. Uh, CTP is still doing a lot of its routine operations. They suspended uh, some of the inspections uh, for a period of time. But, you know, from January, early January to February 6th, they had 2,300 uh, retailer inspections. Um, so, you know, they've continued that. Warning letters were just sent out to some of the vapor companies today. Um, so none of the day-to-day -day functions of uh, a regulatory agency really cease. They continue that. Um, so, you know, we have to be continuing our advocacy message. Um, we don't want to appear tone deaf, um, but we have real problems with deadlines that are approaching that we have to get uh, forth, you know, Congress, um, as well as, you know, even some of the governors in prominent states are, are helpful in keeping that message going, uh, especially during an election year, because they get the political consequences. And I mentioned those numbers, you know, 3,000 small business retailers that are, you know, uh, essential to their communities, 30,000 employees, 120,000 um, plus 3 million consumers, that is a powerful voting block. That is a powerful voice. And, and we need to do uh, a job, you know, our job as PCA, as CRA, as some of the other groups that are involved to really harness that power of the people that are interested in this industry and direct those efforts accordingly. There are so many different contacts in the administration that we can be reaching out to, so many members of Congress. We really need to be calculated, deliberate, um, and also, you know, forceful. We, we, again, we have to make sure that we continue this message and, and carry it forth during this time, during this difficult time, during the election year as well. So for manufacturers right now, I mean, I guess they should be planning for to have to comply for now, um, unless something happens in between now and September. So what can they be doing or what should they be doing or thinking about now? Because it's going to be, I mean, in a couple of days, it's going to be May. So, yeah, you know, and, and the summer goes by really quickly. And then all of a sudden you're, you're at the tail end of the summer. And I mean, the, the kind of stuff that I, I've read about that would be part of the you know, substantial equivalence process. I mean, 
it's, it takes time. So hopefully, you know, like what should they be doing if they haven't started already? Hopefully they have. Yeah. You know, uh, when, when the FDA did release, uh, you know, uh, a statement on the court decision, they also released a new web page with some of those resources that address pre-market review that address substantial equivalence, very high level. It's not, what is needed uh, to fill these uh, reports out properly, in, in my opinion. Um, so, you know, we still have a lot of work to do on the advocacy side. You know, we have the litigation uh, prong um, that still is in, in, in effect. You know, it, I, I would say, and again, I, I deal with most of the retail issues from the manufacturing side. You know, I would look at all of the uh, information um, that is available on the CTP website, some of that new information that was just released last week. Um, I, you have to be constantly consulting your attorneys. Um, and, you know, if you have specific questions, um, myself as well as our regulatory counsel will provide some of that information and feedback. Um, again, we have open lines of communication. One of the things that I will say is that, um, you know, the um, Office of Stakeholder Relations at the FDA has been responsive in answering some one-to-one uh, -one questions as it relates to, you know, some of the substantial equivalence, um, con you know, uh, issues. We have not um, gotten the information that we needed because of pending litigation, because of things that have been going on. But I would expect, you know, open dialogue in, in the next few weeks um, with CTP and with the associations that are, um, you know, interested uh, in, in this issue area. Now, now, looking ahead past substantial equivalence, I mean, what's the next kind of biggest deadline or issue that we need to be kind of focused on as an industry? I think the next biggest issue, and you've already seen this uh, pop up in, in states like New York and Virginia, is taxing. Um, you know, we are the entire industry and every product that tobacco business covers, as well as, you know, the premium cigar industry in this next state legislative cycle in the federal level in the new Congress, we will be under siege with taxes. They are going to be looking for revenue. Um, all of these trillion dollar programs um, at the federal level, providing aid, providing assistance, assistance to certain industries, um, somebody's going to have to pay for it. And they're going to look to areas like tobacco uh, to provide that shortfall. You also see revenue shortages in governments at the state and local level. We're talking about whole states, you know, that could declare bankruptcy or don't have the funds for things. So they're going to be looking for tax increases across the board. Um, and tobacco tends to be a low hanging fruit for them. So again, when I talk about mobilization and grassroots and working with CRA and working with PCA, um, that's going to be essential coming uh, forth in the new Congress and the new state legislative cycles, uh, because we will have to deal with that. Um, you know, a couple of months ago, we talked a lot about the Pallone bill. You know, when we were at TPE, that was uh, something that was top of mind. Uh, Sherrod Brown, uh, senator out of Ohio, has a companion bill, 3174, uh, which S S thirty one seventy four, which is very problematic. It has a ton of restrictions on the entire tobacco industry. Um, 
and, and, you know, sponsorship for premium cigars. It would get rid of a lot of events like, you know, the Heritage Festival, um, mm -hmm. things like that, charitable contributions, things that would decimate the industry that don't have um, any rhyme or reason. You know, that's going to die in the Senate this, uh, this year. But, you know, we're going to have to be very vigilant for next year. They're going to try and sneak in provisions. Um, you saw a lot of misinformation by a lot of the anti-tobacco groups, even through this COVID-19 discussion. Um, so a lot, of us, a lot of what we do is rapid response. When something comes out, we need to respond and set the record straight. And when I'm meeting with members of Congress and the administration, my counterparts are, we're citing FDA data, NIH data. These aren't industry studies, um, but you, you have a lot of manipulation on, uh, on the other side, and uh, we have to set the record straight on that. Um, I think lastly, one of the things that we'll be working on is, you know, reopening. Um, you know, when uh, retail stores in, in states are ready to reopen, PCA uh, wants to work with our retail members uh, to provide guidance to the states to make it so that they can conduct business in a way that's safe, um, you know, sanitation standards. Um, we've been trying throughout this whole crisis to provide accurate information about what accommodations retailers and manufacturers can do um, to, you know, sustain their businesses. And mm -hmm. we were able to get a 90-day extension um, on, on some tax deferment for manufacturers. That's something that we work with, uh, with Customs and Border P Protection. Um, you know, very small issue, but that's going to have millions of dollars of an effect. And, um, you know, so we're looking for opportunities like that where we can weigh in for ways that we can help a robust, sustaining premium cigar industry. And I guess, I mean, on that subject, I mean, the PCA works with and represents a lot of retailers, um, big and small. So what are you hearing from the retailers about how COVID-19 has impacted them? Like how, what are their fears? What are their pressure points right now? What are some issues that, I mean, it's just besides not being able to operate as, as normal that they're, I mean, looking at? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a difficult time for everyone um, across the board, and our industry definitely has uh, a unique set of challenges. I think, you know, a lot of the enactments at the state and local level have been, you know, very restrictive to uh, anyone that's involved in the tobacco industry. Um, you know, we've worked in some states to get essential business classifications, uh, to work to make accommodations uh, for, for uh, you know, uh, some of our retail members, um, you're seeing a lot of people with ingenuity, curbside to go, contactless transactions, developing e-commerce uh, sites and, and local delivery. Um, so, you know, we're a resilient industry. I think that uh, you saw a lot of retailers come up with creative measures to keep, you know, components of their business uh, sustaining through this time. Um, I think it's going to be important that you know, once things are up and running that, uh, you know, manufacturers, retailers and consumers are working together. Um, you know, I, I know that, um, you know, some of our members, I'm, like I said, I'm in Erie, Pennsylvania here. I've ordered cigars from Uptown in, uh, in uh, Chicago. I've ordered some from uh, Dave Garofalo uh, in, in, in 
you know, it's, it's been good to, you know, support those small businesses through this time and, and continue to do so, especially when uh, we get past the, the bulk of the storm. Uh, but, you know, they, they've had unique challenges. I, I know in Colorado you had, um, you know, carte blanche, the uh, cannabis industry was able to operate as normal, uh, but you had tobacco businesses that weren't able to. And we had some of our members getting a lot of media attention and press uh, talking about the disparity there that this, is, this isn't something, something that should stand. You can't have government arbitrarily picking businesses that are able to um, continue to function and not continue to function. Um, so, you know, we want to make as many accommodations as possible. And again, broker discussions with uh, manufacturers and retailers. You've seen uh, some manufacturers offering um, you know, stimulus packages of their own. Um, the solution is going to be part governmental. It's going to be part us advocating to government for solutions, but also it's going to require us internally uh, to make our own uh, policies and adjustments uh, to support the industry. Yeah, definitely. Because I know, like you said, there's so many manufacturers that are stepping up and trying to help out um, where they can. But I think we're all kind of we're, we're not sure what to do. We're not sure what the, you know, when this is actually going to be over, you know. Um, I think that uncertainty, uncertainty never is, is good for the industry. <laughs> so it's, it's yeah. a very kind of tricky situation because it's not like come May 1st, everything's going to be back to normal. You know, it's going to be a phase rollout for a lot of us. Um, and it could trickle into the summer. And this is, you know, impacting a lot of small businesses um, profits for the for the year i mean to have to be operating a month or two kind of in a hole basically is is hard yeah it's i mean it has been difficult and and you know i think for the first four or five weeks i mean i was on the call, on calls 40 or 50 members each week you know what can we do here what can we do there um and and, and the tough thing you know i i, I I run our federal relations, but it's been all hands on deck on some of these local and state things as well. And we have a, an incredible team uh, of regional lobbyists that have been, you know, working on some of these issues and trying to address uh, as many member inquiries as possible. And, um, you know, one thing that I would say across the board, if you have ideas or, or ways that we can be innovative as an industry uh, for the folks out there that are, are retailers, manufacturers or media, um, you know, we are open ears. Uh, Scott and I, uh, you know, have been working on a lot of these different plans um, over the past few weeks, you know, trying to do as much digital engagement and bring the voices together. And I think, you know, shows like this are, are, are very helpful. And, and we've been doing a, a few uh, panel sessions, in, industry panel sessions, um, and, and really maximizing the time. The other thing um, we are launching this week is a town hall series with members of Congress. If you're a PCA member, or associate member, um, you will be able to um, have a dialogue with members of Congress directly. Um, I think that's very important to build that grassroots foundation. Um, so uh, we have a session uh, this Thursday with Representative Guy Rushenvaller of Pennsylvania, who's a champion of the premium cigar industry, was at the state level and now is at the federal level. Um, so, you know, we're trying to also shift 
ourselves as an, an association to a lot of these digital things. We had a very successful public engagement series at the townhouse where we would bring a hundred plus, um, you know, people in the DC area, congressional staff, members of Congress to learn about the premium cigar industry. And that has shifted over to digital. Um, you know, Thursday, we're, we're having a session with uh, Pete Johnson of uh, Tatawahe and uh, Phil Ledbetter of Updown Cigars and kind of talking through, you know, how's COVID affecting you? What are some of these uh, ways we can help support the industry. So some of the questions that we're talking about today, uh, we're getting people that are, are in the field uh, working on these things. And I guess how important do you think or what role do you think digital is going to have uh, in the industry going forward? Because I know me, I've always had to work on the digital, but the industry hasn't always been there. <laughs> uh, it's, it's been playing a lot of catch up um, either way, trying to get people in more into the digital space. Um, and I know this industry is very traditional, so they still like their magazines, you know, print magazines. They still, you know, enjoy pamphlets, pieces of paper. They, they like their trade shows coming there being, you know, in person. But it's like this whole situation is causing us all to have to pivot and, and really kind of address, you know, not being able to like gather in big groups or not being able to um, you know, consume information in the same way. So what role do you think ha having, like you said, the PCA ha having grasped the, the digital thing and doing it a little bit more lately, do you think that's going to be a, a permanent thing going forward? Or do you think it'll be kind of phased out and replaced with kind of with the, the old way, you know, as, as the year goes on? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, first and foremost, um, we are a relationship industry. There's nothing, and whether it's advocating before members of Congress or the administration, person to person, having a conversation um, is, is the best that we can do. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that a lot of these uh, digital engagements will sustain, um, you know, especially with the association. We're, you know, we're going to continue the, our traditional print magazine um, you know, we're working on the next issue of that. Um, but, you know, these digital engagements have been very positive. And I think that, you know, they folks want to hear from the organizations that represent them. Um, you know, the industry is not going to agree with everything. You know, there, there's going to be some friction. There's going to be some factionalism. But the one thing that I can offer to, to people across the board is that we will listen. We will take the feedback. Um, and I have an open line of communication. I, you know, I, I give my cell phone out to everyone um, that, that wants to have a conversation on ways that we can improve. So, you know, I, I think that Digital is going to be a component of it. I think that you've seen a lot of brick and mortar retailers, um, you know, develop websites that advertise their products. I think that, you know, you can have the best of both worlds where, uh, uh, you know, a retail tobacconist that's a, uh, uh, can advertise through some digital means, but you can go into their shop and have that, um, you know, in-person experience from an experienced tobaccoist that, um, you know, I would not be able to understand the premium cigar industry if I did not spend hours upon hours in Georgetown Tobacco or Drapers right. or, you know, those places having in-person conversation and having the ability to connect with people. And, you know, retailers bring in the manufacturers, they bring people with a wealth of knowledge 
into their stores through those live events. I, I can tell you across the board, everyone misses those events. I miss going to, you know, drapers and meeting people um, that are in the industry, hearing their story. Um, we've been able to uh, complement some of that uh, and supplement that, um, you know, during this difficult time through some of these conversations. But, you know, being able to, you know, have a cocktail and a cigar, uh, with, with somebody in the industry, there's nothing that beats that. And that's, you know, what drew me to the industry coming from the community banking side of things. Um, the beauty of working in the premium cigar industry is that relationship driven in-person dialogue. So I think it's, it'll be complimentary in the future. And a few minutes ago, you talked about the different organizations kind of having to work together in some way. So like I've seen a lots of your press releases come out lately and, and it's a joint statement kind of press release where you and Cigar Rights like more and more. And I know we all were kind of devastated by the news that, you know, Glenn Luke would be leaving CRA, you know, come at the, the towards the end of the year and stuff like that. So, I mean, what is that relationship with the other trade organization? How do you kind of figure out, um, you know, who's gonna represent this part of the issue compared to this part and kind of come together because it's almost like a transformer um, type of approach where, you know, PCA might be like focused on just this part of the, the problem. But then you have NATO over here or you have Cigar Association of America over here, Cigar Rights, you know, over here doing the same thing. So how do you all kind of communicate to figure out so you're not tripping over yourselves? Yeah, I mean, we have a, an open dialogue, um, you know, as you mentioned, with Cigar Rights of America. We've, we've had a cooperative partnership with them, um, you know, during my time with with the association, I think that, you know, it's it, Glenn has done a fantastic job. Their team continues to do a fantastic job and have been doing so for a while. I'm incredibly impressed by the CRA board um, and the amount of time uh, that they put into it. Same thing with the PCA board. Uh, we would not be as successfully in our advocacy effort if we did not have engaged stakeholders uh, like the CRA board, like the PCA board, um, you know, meeting on a regular basis with elected officials. Um, it's going to happen this week. But we keep an open dialogue across the board, um, you know, in, in running our, our, our federal operations, um, we keep a dialogue, you know, with Cigar Association um, and, and all of the trade groups. I think one of the things that I wanted to position PCA is, is a hub that, um, you know, we're, again, we're not going to agree on everything, uh, but we will communicate, um, you know, our policy positions clearly. Um, we will work with people and we'll have a, an engaged dialogue. Um, and that's all anyone can ask for. So, you know, I, I think that um, we, we're a retailer first organization going back to our history, um, but we really want to see the premium cigar industry succeed. And that's why, you know, we'll work coordinately. We don't want to have over, overlap on, on some of the resources. I think that, you know, CRA and uh, NATO put out some great informational things. I think that we put out a lot of great things. Um, you know, up from the COVID-19 response, I would take the PCA materials that we have been putting it out and compare it apples to apples to some of the large associations like the, you know, National Federation of Independent Businesses and the Restaurants Association. 
we've been uh, able to get our information out at a rapid pace so that, you know, if you want uh, information on the Paycheck Protection Program, you have it the next day and you can fill out your application and get to the front of the line. Um, so I think that that's important. I think all of um, you know, there, there's definitely some, you know, factionalism um, and, uh, you know, friction that, that comes uh, with, with part of the job. But, you know, it is um, something that is not uncommon. You have every industry that has things like that. We have our own set of challenges and opportunities. But, you know, and, and I'm coming up, I think next week is my one year mark um, as a, a full time employee of PCA. Um, and I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunity. Um, and, you know, every day I wake up hoping that we can improve and sustain this industry because um, it is a great thing where you have personal stories and, and things that, you know, um, we're, we're very proud of. I, I had a conversation with uh, Alan Rubin a couple of weeks ago and, you know, they're providing food for 700 employees for 30 days. And, uh, you know, you have just so many stories of that um, generosity of uh, that positive impact uh, on communities um, and, you know, being the retail side, these are cultural social centers where people talk about um, politics. They talk about, you know, topics that otherwise people wouldn't want to, you know, talk about at all. So, you know, by that nature of the industry, it is very communicative. Um, sometimes you have some controversies here and there. Uh, but for me, I don't look at it as a negative. I look at it as a positive. And we're always open to hear outside voices. And, and just talk, since we have 15 minutes left, let's touch on that, that um, material you've been putting out about COVID-19 and what retailers can take advantage of. So what is some of that, those resources? Because I don't know if, if everybody's been um, seeing it. I know I see it because I'm on Facebook all the time and I see you all post <laughs> it on there every day. But like, what, what are some of the things that, that retailers can be taking advantage of right now um, when so, it comes to COVID-19? So there's a couple uh, of different resources. We did a webinar. Uh, it's, it's funny, time blends. So I, I want to say two weeks ago, um, uh, a webinar on the Paycheck Protection Program, some of the emergency disaster loans that are available. Um, so, you know, that, that segment, it's a 45-minute webinar, really walks through all of the benefits that are available to uh, retailers, small businesses, um, and even some small manufacturers. So um, that's, that's a resource. Also, as part of that Paycheck Protection Program, we had a, a, a webinar earlier today um, that addressed about uh, how to turn those uh, loans into grants to ensure that you're able to, um, you know, keep as much money as possible from that uh, government aid programs. So those that uh, a lawyer and accountant um, provided that um, representation um, and, and we're on that that. Uh, resource. So we really wanted to keep um, those two as our, our core points. We have a web page dedicated to COVID-19 resources. For the first two weeks, we were providing daily updates, you know, what's going on on the legislative front, um, and also, you know, communicating our advocacy priorities uh, to uh, you know, elected officials. You know, one of the shortfalls, I think, of that uh, Paycheck Protection Program is you had this huge pool of money that was granted 
and everybody needed it, you know, whether you were a restaurant, a premium cigar retailer, uh, a casino, like across the board where everyone was going for this money. And the Small Business Administration was the one administering this program. Um, and, and Congress really didn't put any of the infrastructure in place, human resources, financial capital uh, mm -hmm. for the SBA to administer that program. So it was reauthorized last week. An additional $310 billion was granted. But today you had their website crashing again. Um, so, you know, you know, it's been one of those things where um, I, I would say be patient. I, I know that it is extremely difficult. This is livelihoods and businesses that are on the line. But we're talking about massive expenditures that are, you know, in totality, GDP percentages and whole economies that are being spent. And you really have a limited number of people that are, are administering this program. Uh, we also wanted to make the funds that are part of this program um, easy to use for retailers. So there were a lot of criteria that were set. Um, we want folks to be able to use rent, uh, use the, the funds for rent. That seems to be an area that is the biggest concern for retailers. Um, in addition to, um, you know, being able to use it for payroll. So um, those resources, we have a lot of web, web resources out there. We've been doing those three at three segments um, with different folks in the industry and a lot of ideas have come up. Um, and then I mentioned uh, pretty much weekly, we're doing uh, a, a guide on different things. Last week, it was e-commerce. Um, the week before, it was on curbside to go. Um, things like that that would be really unique um, and, and specific for how to operate a business in that. And again, we're combining governmental and non-governmental resources. Right. So, I mean, it's like, what should, I mean, just taking a step back, for, P for like PCA, like who should be a member of PCA? Because I don't think, I think sometimes we just assume people know and, and maybe they, they don't know anymore. But who should, like who, who are your kind of like target people that you're trying to get to sign up for to be a member these days? For sure. So, you know, we, uh, you know, I, I mentioned we're retailer first. first. Um, so if you're a retail premium tobacconist, um, you know, that's our, our core membership. Um, we also have associates that are, are manufacturers and media. Um, so, you know, there's, there's ways to join there. You can find a lot of that information, the specific criteria on our website, premiumcigars.org. Um, on the advocacy side, um, you know, if you, we have another website, cigaraction.org. That is for anybody and everybody in the industry. It's free. It's not a membership classification, but it's if we have something that pops up um, that's uh, uh, a legislative issue in Virginia and you're from Virginia and you're a consumer, you're a, uh, you, an employee of uh, a tobacconist, you're an owner, you're a manufacturer, you name it. If you're interested in, and, and some are, are folks that are not even uh, cigar enthusiasts, but they're you know, pro small business, pro uh, free enterprise, you can go in there and take action, sign up to receive some of our emails. Again, it's just informational. Um, you know, we've been producing a lot of content that is across the board for uh, the industry uh, to, to be the voice of the industry on some of these major issues. So, you know, there are obviously the main membership types, retailers and manufacturers, media, 
but on the advocacy side, if you're a consumer or interested in some of these issues, uh, there's a place for you. And, you know, we, we've um, been able to fight on, on, on some of these issues that are specific. Uh, an example of that was an action alert that we released um, for uh, the T21 going way back about trying to get concessions for people in the military, provide a military exemption. So we had folks that were, you know, just members of the military that wanted to have that choice. Um, and um, that's an example of some folks that aren't necessarily in the premium cigar industry that have been working with us on some advocacy fronts that in order to succeed in Washington, and I've learned it, being there a decade, you have to have coalitions of people. You have to have diversity in communicating your issues um, from a variety, variety of different vantage points. Um, and, and that's really why we have that cigar action to be a one-stop shop. If you're listening to this segment and it's your first time, you know, learning about premium cigars or you see a Facebook post of ours that in, interests you, go there to find more information um, and, and ways to get involved. So I think for the last question, I'm gonna take it back to somebody uh, asked this question at TPE, but they wanted to know, you know, on a local level, what's one thing that you would tell them that they can do to kind of uh, create change for the industry? For sure. You know, I think um, the local and state level is where folks can have the greatest impact, um, you know, and, and really developing a, a, a core group. It can be very informal, uh, but, you know, starting a Facebook group of, you know, I'm, uh, Erie, Pennsylvania, cigar enthusiast in Erie, Pennsylvania. Uh, and, you know, it can be predominantly fun, fun loving where you post your favorite smoke or a review or, hey, this is an interesting article, um, things like that. Um, you know, I, I think, um, you know, basically taking that information, co coalescing and building a group, then you're able to, when it becomes time of challenging a local ordinance that's, you know, banning smoking, you can activate that group, um, developing that personal relationship. So, you know, unfortunately right now you can't meet with your local right. council members and your local, um, you know, state legislatures, but eventually we'll get back to that. Um, so my recommendation, you know, now we, we have some active alerts that are on there. Uh, you know, I mentioned Sherrod Brown's 3174, you know, you can go on there and oppose that bill. Um, you know, that's, that's a step forward. Um, you know, occasionally we'll have some different petitions. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be putting out materials where, where folks can get involved with the industry from a, a low, uh, you know, the easiest area. We refer to things a lot of times as the ladders of engagement, get people interested, maybe retweet something, maybe retweet an article that you wrote about um, the tobacco industry and, you, and your, per, you know, um, getting that out to more audiences. And then eventually, um, you know, come February of, of next year, when we're doing our industry fly in, volunteering and coming and meeting with your, you know, your US Senator or your Congressman, uh, we want to work to people. Part of my job, in addition to lobbying and advocacy is civic education. I got to teach people how to communicate it with government, you know, that how, how a bill becomes a law and uh, government 101 and, and we're that's my resources to um, the premium cigar industry so you know if people have questions or you know 
want to learn more, we're developing those resources too that are, you know, not cigar specific, but are civic specific, how to get involved. So if people want to follow you or get in touch with the PCA, um, having listened to this or watched it, um, how can they do that? I think best way uh, to contact me is LinkedIn or my email address, uh, Joshua at premiumcigars.org. Our our website has, uh, as I mentioned, a a variety of different resources. I think uh, especially during COVID-19, you'll see a lot of new resources, as as you mentioned, on Facebook. Um, And, um, you know, our staff is very accessible. We're a lean, mean group of seven. Um, and, um, you know, when things, uh, pass with COVID-19 and, and things resume, you know, if you're ever in the Washington DC area, free, feel free to, uh, get a hold of us. Um, I think some of the best conversations and developments and ideas that have come up have been folks that have visited our townhouse near union station where I can, you know, have a cigar and, and discuss with them, uh, some of the pressing issues of what's going on. Well, I mean, we're at the end of our time together, but I think it was fun and I definitely learned a lot about substantial equivalents and I hope people who, who watched learn more and um, learn about some advocacy things they can do. Um, and hopefully we'll do this again, you know, because I'm every, it seems like every other month there's a, a big legislative something going on. So um, a, a good time to maybe follow up and do this again, maybe once a month or once every other month, um, depending on how quarantine goes and COVID-19 recovery goes and how I adapt to the, the, the new normal. <laughs> exactly. Well, Antoine, I really appreciate all that you do for the, the industry and tobacco business. And, um, you know, I had a great time on the panel at TPE. And I, I think that it's good to keep this dialogue and information sharing out there. And I'm always accessible, whatever you need. Hey, thank you so much. Emma. Don't worry, I will be reaching out. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Well, have a good rest of your uh, your day, and uh, hopefully you get to enjoy a good cigar tonight. Yeah, same to you. <laughs> Take care. Bye.